This week on Viewpoints. One of the things that can be really destructive isn't so much what you say. If you say it with contempt or disgust or disdain, that real dismissing way, that's one of the things that can be pretty dangerous. How do you handle conflict then? Sometimes when things like this happen, we're like, oh, I'm a loser or oh, I'm a failure. But I think the idea is that, no, you're a human being. The value of grit in life. I'm Marty Peterson. And I'm Gary Price. These stories in depth this week on your public affairs magazine, Viewpoints. Hey, we get it. You don't want to be hearing a progressive commercial right now. So let us tell you something you do want to hear. No one is funnier than you. People laugh just thinking about the things you've said. <laughs> I'm laughing at one of them right now. Coworkers repeat your jokes at the office, but they're never as good as when you tell them and shame on them for trying. There. Don't you feel better? You'll also feel better knowing you could save when you bundle home and auto with Progressive. <laughs> Although I'm sure you'd have a funnier way to say that. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates and other insurers. Bundle discount not available in all states or situations. I'm Dr. Baker, an ER physician. If you're having leg pain, swelling, or redness, but haven't talked to your doctor yet, don't wait. This could be deep vein thrombosis, a blood clot which could travel to your lungs and lead to a pulmonary embolism, which could cause chest pain or discomfort or difficulty breathing and be deadly. Your symptoms could mean something serious, so don't wait. Talk to a doctor right away by phone, online, or in person. Brought to you by Bristol-Myers Squibb and Pfizer. The one thing that can ruin even the most romantic evening or productive business meeting is conflict. It happens all the time, even to the most committed spouses and longtime business partners. Long, festering disagreements can break up a marriage and a company, but they don't have to. Dana Kasperson is a conflict mediator and coach and an expert in conflict resolution. She's also author of the book, Changing the Conversation, The 17 Principles of Conflict Resolution. She says conflict is the same across the board, no matter if it happens in the bedroom or the boardroom. Conflict can be a place of possibility because it can be a place where we find out what matters to people. Depending on how we approach it, we can bring important topics to light. We can find ways to create a ground on which we can talk about them together and then come to these solutions that make sense because they have to do with what people care about on a more basic level. So in all of those conflicts, in personal work, community, nation, essentially what happens is that people's strategies come into conflict. But underneath that are underlying needs and interests that essentially could be met in a lot of different ways. Learning productive ways to resolve conflicts is beneficial, though it can be uncomfortable at times. Emotions can run high, and this can be off-putting for individuals who don't like confrontation. Casperson says that if you tell someone in a conflict to quit being hysterical and they stifle their emotions, you lose some valuable information that could help in the resolution. The emotions themselves are part of the way that we think. They're part of our intelligence. So we need to be able to let them do their work, which is to give us a signal that something else is important to us. We feel angry because we care about this. We feel frightened because this is important to us. And to be able to acknowledge an emotion in a way that doesn't either suppress it or escalate it. So, for example, in the difference between saying, would you just calm down? You know, you're acting like a three-year-old. Or saying, it sounds like you're furious about this. What's most important to you? 
So letting emotion help us get to what really matters in the situation. Dr. Judith Wright agrees. She's an author, corporate consultant, and founder of the Wright Graduate University for the Realization of Human Potential, where she also teaches. She says that in an intimate relationship, it's okay to be emotional and get things off your chest. But be careful of how you say things. Emotions are part of fighting. So your anger, your fear, your hurt, your sadness, your joy, all those feelings need to be shared. And fighting is one of the ways those things come out. So having your emotions as part of it is important. But also, one of the things that can be really destructive isn't so much what you say. If you say it with contempt or disgust or disdain, that real dismissing way, that's one of the things that can be pretty dangerous in a relationship. That can cause a lot of damage or scar tissue in the relationship. So it's more about, you know, I'm hurt by this, I'm angry about that. And having some venom isn't so terrible if you can really keep somewhat responsible. And if you're not, clean it up pretty quickly. Wright adds that stewing about a problem and holding it in will only make things worse. You can get a little distant sometimes and maybe you can say it a a little bit more responsibly, but we have to express ourselves that not expressing, not fighting, not talking creates a lot of distance. And oftentimes we get resentments that build up. There's a coldness. There's a distance. I mean, maybe a couple's not fighting, but it could be that they're giving each other the silent treatment, which is just as damaging as being able to say things out loud with some emotional tone to it. Listening carefully to the other person is also crucial. Kasperson says that interrupting them to get your own point across shifts the focus of the meeting onto you and makes them feel like you don't care about their opinion. And one thing that is most important to people in conflict is to know that they've been heard, that you're listening to them and that you're hearing what they care about, whether or not you agree with it. And the other thing is that in conflict, people are often expressing themselves in ways that make it very difficult to hear them, to hear what's important to them. So one of the basic practices of this book is to get used to asking ourselves the question, what would this sound like if it was said without attack? So translating what people are saying, temporarily ignoring the attack, and really focusing our attention in what they care about, what the important information is that's going to help us move towards solution. Often at work and at home, an individual who's upset with a situation will bend the ears of coworkers and friends. Kasperson says this strategy is unproductive and doesn't get to the root of the problem or its resolution. Figure out what the real problem is, and as opposed to ranting about it to other people or approaching it in a passive-aggressive way or complaining about that person to others, that you go to the person, you bring up the real issue at hand and have the direct conversation that's going to have the most effect because a lot of times conflicts become more escalated when we drag other people into them that actually are not involved in the conflict itself. Wright says that in her own life, she has discussed conflicts with others, but not to complain to them or to try to get them on her side. Oftentimes you're just trying to get somebody to back you up and it can cause this kind of drama triangle where you feel ganged up on or whatever. At the same time, sometimes if you can get another person that has some perspective to help you both see things, that can be helpful, which is why counseling or coaching can be helpful. Both Casperson and Wright say that sometimes it's best to take a time out, but that doesn't mean walking away from the problem altogether. Certainly there's times when it's not a great moment to try to talk about it if someone is too upset. And how we approach that can either make it worse or better. So if we say, I'm not going to talk to you about this because you're just going to freak out again then that's likely to escalate them. It casts them as being incapable of dialogue. But if instead we would say, okay, it looks like you're pretty upset about this. I'm having a hard time talking about this right now. 
can we make an arrangement to talk about this in a couple hours? Something like that. So we acknowledge the emotion. We acknowledge the person as capable of doing it at some point and ask, would this be better if we talked about this later? I had to do this in our relationship with my husband. He was much more verbal than I, and he would ask me a lot of questions and felt like it was just coming at me, and I would get kind of frozen and freeze and feel like, oh, defensive. And we had a, a range signal, like, okay, it's time for a timeout. I would take a timeout. And what that did, it helped me understand, wait a minute, what's going on with me? Why am I so upset about this? What's triggering for me? What's at the heart of this? And if I could get to that heart of the fight and get to my deeper yearning and what this symbolized for me, then I can go back and share more vulnerably with him. Those are some of our most productive fights because they were more honest. They're more true about what was really going on. And that time out wasn't just to punish my husband or push him away. It was for me to get clear on what I was really feeling and what was going on so I could share more truthfully and vulnerably with him. Speaking of honesty, Wright says that truthfulness is one of the most important elements for both sides to maintain in a conflict. Express and agree with the truth always. Tell the truth. If you're in a conflict and your partner or someone says something that's true, even if it bugs you, admit it. Say, yep, good point. You're right. Or even begrudgingly give them the point. You know, you're right in it. I don't want to give you that satisfaction, but I have to admit that that's true what you just said. Getting to the truth can really start to unlock things. We're also hungry to be affirmed in a fight. And if somebody keeps denying the reality of it, it's kind of crazy making. Since conflict is a normal part of life, is it a good idea to create a time and place to regularly get things out in the open, to discuss what's bugging you? Wright says it's a great idea for confronting those nagging problems head on. And the couples that we coach, they all do weekly dates, and sometimes that's a dinner and a movie, but oftentimes they also have a weekly meeting, sometimes part of the date, sometimes it's Saturday breakfast, however they decide. But they go through several things like, okay, what worked for me this week, and what did I love about how you were with me, and what didn't I like, and what's bugging me? And they clear the air, and they also then make a plan for the next week of how they want to be together, what they're afraid of the next week in their work or their career, their family, and what they can help each other with. And they use these as empowering kinds of dates together. Casperson addresses this strategy at the end of her book and thinks it's a great idea for couples who plan a regular date around it. Expect and plan for future conflict, which is such a useful event. And it sounds like that's what they've done, which is fantastic. They said we're likely to have ongoing things, little or big. Let's meet every week and just make sure we get it out of the way. So they've already undercut the possibility of festering conflict, and they've found a way to bring it into the open to talk about it continually, which is great. What if a conflict isn't resolved to your satisfaction? Do you ever just give in? Casperson says that if a conflict is not resolved to your satisfaction or at all, let it go for a while. It depends how important it is to you. So if it's something that you really care about and the solution that has been reached is not an effective one, then I would go back and say, okay, we talked about this and I'm finding that the solution we came up with doesn't really work for me and here's the reasons. This is what I care about. This is how the solution works in relationship to that. Would you be willing to talk again about if we can find a better way to deal with this situation? You can read up on Dr. Judith Wright and her work on her website, judithwright.com. For a workbook on how to resolve conflicts productively at home or at work, pick up Dana Kasperson's book, Changing the Conversation, in stores and online. For more information about all of our guests, log on to our site at viewpointsradio.org. 
This segment originally aired in February 2015 and was written and produced by Pat Reuter. I'm Gary Price. Coming up, this past year has tested us all. But have the challenges made us more resilient? When Viewpoints returns. Two nationwide surveys find that discrimination is a significant barrier to care for people with Alzheimer's and dementia. Half or more of non-white Alzheimer's caregivers report they face discrimination in navigating health care for the recipient. Dr. Carl V. Hill is Chief Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Officer of the Alzheimer's Association. The data suggests we have a long way to go to address lack of health equity in health care. More than 80% of non-white racial and ethnic groups say it's important for Alzheimer's care providers to understand their backgrounds and experiences. But fewer than half of Blacks and only about 60% of Hispanics and Asian Americans feel confident about their access to culturally competent providers. The surveys also reveal a lack of trust among Blacks in research clinical trials, and half doubt that advances in Alzheimer's treatments would be shared. These findings are part of the 2021 Alzheimer's Association Facts and Figures Report. Find out more at alz.org facts. I struggled with symptoms like frequent gas and stomach pain for years. I was bloated all the time with daily diarrhea. At first, I thought it was what I was eating. I kept thinking it was stomach issues. So I did my research and talked to my doctor, and we finally uncovered the truth. It, it was, was actually EPI. Exocrine pancreatic insufficiency, or EPI, is a condition where your pancreas is unable to help break down your food. It can lead to symptoms like diarrhea, gas, bloating, stomach pain, unexplained weight loss, and oily stools. And EPI symptoms can be confused with those of other common digestive conditions, like irritable bowel syndrome, Crohn's, and celiac disease. So getting to the right diagnosis meant being more open with my doctor about the severity of my symptoms and how often they were happening. But there's good news. EPI is manageable, so don't wait any longer. Use the symptom checker at identifyepi.com and schedule a visit or call with your doctor to ask, Could Could I I have have EPI? EPI? Sponsored by AbbVie. The great American inventor Thomas Edison said, the three great essentials to achieve anything worthwhile are first, hard work, second, stick-to-itiveness, third, common sense, Edison should know. Although he had more than 1,000 patents on innovations, he also failed many times in pursuit of those successes. What is it that makes some people persevere in the face of failure or rejection, and others give up? Angela Duckworth calls it grit. Duckworth is a professor of psychology at the University of Pennsylvania, scientific director of the Character Lab, and author of the book Grit, The Power of Passion and Perseverance. So what is grit? I define grit as a combination of two things, perseverance for a long-term goal, but also passion for that goal. So pursuing something over the very long run that you care about deeply. Duckworth devised a grit scale, and she tested it out at the United States Military Academy at West Point. The test presented participants with statements such as, my interests change from year to year, and I am diligent, I never give up, and asked them to rate themselves on a five-point scale that ranged from not at all like me to very much like me. 
Despite the obvious talent and intelligence of the cadets at the academy and the rigorous application process they go through just to get in, it was grit that determined if they would stick it out. At West Point Military Academy, their first summer of training is somewhat affectionately known as Beast Barracks, or sometimes they just call it the Beast. You know, it's a hard time for these young men and women, even though these are some of the best and brightest, most able young adults in the country with the congressional recommendation, top marks. These are varsity athletes. But they often struggle because they're being asked to do things that they can't yet do. And for, you know, half of these cadets, they're going to be in the bottom half, maybe for the first time in their life of a group of peers. And what we find is that the measure of talent that West Point has used for decades, it's called the whole candidate score, a weighted average of your SATs, your high school rank, your physical ability based on things like the two-mile run, and your leadership potential as appraised by expert psychologists. This has actually remarkably little to do with whether you finish this beast training or not, whereas grit measured on day two of the training is actually a reliable predictor. Duckworth says that the whole candidate score is important, and if the cadets stay at West Point, it's a good predictor of how well they'll do in every aspect that the academy measures. But it's no guarantee that you'll show up, you know, through the end of that first hard training. And I think that's one of the lessons from my research, that it's not that talent doesn't matter at all. Of course it does. Of course it must. But talent is no guarantee that you'll be the hardest worker or the one who sticks in things for the long run. And I think if we single-mindedly think about talent and IQ as the only determinants, then we are leaving out effort, the quality and the quantity of our effort. Many people go through life doing what they think they should do without really loving it. How do we find our passion? I can speak personally to that. I was 32 when I started my PhD program, when I started down the path formally to become the psychologist that I am today. And believe me, I would have started down that path many years earlier if I had actually figured it out. So it was a struggle for me as well to identify, to develop that passion. I think the first lesson is that it does take years for many people to fully develop a passion. It doesn't happen in a moment in time. It doesn't happen the way you think it might as a kind of epiphany that sort of drops out of the blue. For many of us, you know, we have these interests. They're not quite developed. We start to do something. The more we learn about it, we get more and more interested in it. Our interests deepen over time. And then ultimately, I think what really becomes a passion is something that we not only find interesting, but also that we find meaningful. And for most people, meaning comes from serving others. So for me as a psychologist, what makes me wake up in the morning with energy to get into the game again, is that it's interesting to me, but also I feel like my work will benefit children and other people if I do it well. Along with purpose, interest, and practice, Duckworth says that hope is necessary to grow grit from the inside out. But it's not the kind of hope that tomorrow will be better than today. The hope she's talking about requires you to make tomorrow better than today. I think the hope that psychologists really mean when they talk about hope and resilience and being an optimist is the hope that does focus you on what you can do, even if you are fully in charge of your situation, which of course none of us are, right? I mean, there is luck in life, good luck and bad luck. And there are opportunities. Sometimes those opportunities are available to us. And sometimes we see the opportunities that other people have that we don't have connections to people, that kind of thing. The interesting thing about the people that I study who are highly successful is they don't ignore the fact that there's luck in life and that there are unequal opportunities, but they have a bias to look at the things that they can change. They would rather spend their attention 
attention and their energy thinking about what they can do, even if it's not everything, even if it's not most things, but what small thing can they do to change their situation for the better? Duckworth says that bringing up children to have more perseverance and not walk away from difficult tasks is the job of adults. And she charges all of the grown-ups in a kid's life to pitch in and help them by setting a good example as she did with her daughter. I think all adults in a child's life do have a role to play in modeling for that child what it means to struggle a little bit, not to be perfect, not to be invulnerable. You know, I cry in front of my children. I show them my disappointments, but to model for them what it means to get up again. They've seen me go to bed weeping because I couldn't write the next chapter of my book, but they saw me get up again and have a cup of coffee and sit down and take a deep breath and try again. And when she grew up, not only did we try to model for her grit and to share with her our own vulnerabilities and our own, you know, imperfection, our own struggle to find our passion, to develop that passion. We also tried to get her to be involved in activities with other quote-unquote parents, other teachers and coaches who would be able to teach her those lessons. And she was hugely benefited, I think, by having a great viola teacher and a great track coach. And I think those many experiences do add up. You know, no child, I think, is born knowing what they need to do. And no child is born having all the grit that we hope that they might have. So if you don't make that long-haul goal you set, if you bow out of West Point before the summer is over, or if you can't make the cut to become the concert pianist you always wanted to be, are you a failure? I think the most important thing about the research that I'm doing and that other psychologists are doing is to recognize that people really are growing, learning, adaptive creatures. We're not fixed. We're not static. And so one of the things that psychologists like to talk about when they talk about development over the life course is the maturity principle. And that is that qualities like grit, you know, conscientiousness, being nice, I mean, very positive, desirable qualities that we consider to be what a mature, wise person would be like, these actually do increase over the lifespan. So I think we should be compassionate about ourselves and not expect perfection. I spent too much time as a young woman trying to be perfect. I think that in a way was unnecessary roughness. I should have just recognized that I was doing my best and I was evolving. And, you know, I made a lot of good decisions. I made some bad ones and I learned from all of them. You can learn more about Angela Duckworth's research into what makes people succeed in her book, Grit. The Power of Passion and Perseverance, available online now and in bookstores. To find out more about this topic and listen to archives of past shows, visit viewpointsradio.org. This segment originally aired in March of 2018 and was written and produced by Evan Rook. Our executive producer is Amira Saveri. Studio production by Jason Dickey. I'm Marty Peterson. Viewpoints returns in just a moment. Welcome to today's Book Minute, brought to you by BookTrib.com, the leading source of book news and reviews. Sometimes in life you're given very tough circumstances, every possible hardship or reversal of fortune imaginable. And in that moment, there are two roads ahead of you. The road of victimization and failure, yielding to circumstance, or the road of optimism and innovation and recreation of yourself. On the road less traveled, an unlikely journey from the orphanage to the boardroom is the riveting memoir of Ed Hagem, who faced those two roads at a very early age and could have chosen the wrong one. His father literally kidnapped him at age three and told him his mother was dead. He grew up in orphanages and foster homes, but he turned his life around, living the American dream as an accomplished Wall Street executive and an inspiration to many. 
an improbable story filled with human drama, wisdom, and timeless life lessons. On the Road Less Traveled is available at bookstores everywhere. Welcome to Culture Crash, where we examine American culture, what's new and old in books, film, and entertainment. I was in the first or second grade when I started reading Harry Potter books. My brother is four years older than me and insisted I read them. He insisted so much that he actually sat down and read the first four books to me. We once passed the time on a 25-hour car ride from Florida back home to Chicago by reading a majority of Goblet of Fire out loud. We waited in line at a bookstore until midnight for The Order of the Phoenix and The Deathly Hallows, We were busy when Half-Blood Prince came out, but went first thing in the morning. And yes, we went to see some of the movies at midnight. But, and hang with me, neither of us really loved the movies. I know it's tough to adapt books to movies, but some of the omissions really bothered us. Why is the longest book the shortest movie? Who decided to make the ultra-dark sixth year into a movie that is trying its hardest to be a coming-of-age comedy? And why, oh why, was a question Dumbledore asked Harry calmly in the books turned into this in the movie? Harry! I protest! Harry, you put your name in the cover of the fire. No, sir. You asked one of the oldest students to do it for you? No, sir. You're absolutely sure? Yes, sir. When Michael Gambon stepped into the role of Dumbledore after the passing of Richard Harris, the character transformed from the steady, wise presence we loved in the books into a jumpy, grouchy old man we could barely even recognize. I'm not trying to say the movies are all bad. Alfonso Cuaron's Prisoner of Azkaban film is actually kind of great, but on the whole, the eight-part movie series leaves a lot to be desired. And I know this isn't a new phenomenon. Book readers complain about adaptations all the time. But here's the good news. The books are still as magical as ever. My brother Joe, who made me love Harry Potter through that force of will, recently told me a story. He was watching Deathly Hallows Part 2 on TV and grew frustrated by the depiction. The climactic battle between Harry and he who shall not be named is altered so significantly that he said he just turned it off instead of finishing it. But then he did something else. He walked upstairs, pulled Book 7 off the shelf, and read the final few chapters, and felt transported back to Hogwarts. Joe is now a father of three little kids, and someday, sooner than later, he's going to be thrilled to share his love for Harry Potter with his children. But I think he's going to have to instill one little rule. Book before movie, no exceptions. I'm Evan Rook. I'm one of thousands of women with metastatic breast cancer, or MBC. Which is breast cancer that is spread to other parts of the body. I'm living in the moment and taking Ibrand's Palpocyclib. Ibrand's 125 milligram tablets with an aromatase inhibitor is for postmenopausal women or for men with HR positive, HER2 negative MBC as the first hormonal-based therapy. Be in your moment. Ask your doctor about Ibrand's and visit Ibrand's.com. Patients taking Ibrand's can develop low white blood cell counts, which may cause serious infections that can lead to death. Ibrands may cause severe inflammation of the lungs that can lead to death. Tell your doctor right away if you have new or worsening symptoms, including trouble breathing, shortness of breath, cough, or chest pain. Before taking Ibrands, tell your doctor if you have fever, chills, or other signs of infection, liver or kidney problems, are pregnant, breastfeeding, or plan to become pregnant. Common side effects include low red blood cell and low platelet counts, infections, tiredness, nausea, sore mouth, abnormalities in liver blood tests, diarrhea, hair thinning or loss, vomiting, rash, and loss of appetite. 
And that's Viewpoints for this week. Viewpoints is a production of MediaTracks Communications. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram to learn more about upcoming shows. And find a library of past programs on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify. Plus, you'll always find previous segments and more information about our guests at viewpointsradio.org. Join us again next week for another edition of Viewpoints. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks... Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.